Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Towards Healthcare, an H1 podcast, where today we'll be meeting two esteemed faculty members from Faculty Opinions. For those of you currently unfamiliar with Faculty Opinions, we are the H1 solution that connects the global research communities in academia and industry and healthcare professionals with the expertise and insights of key opinion leaders on the latest research in medicine and life sciences. Our experts scrutinise the scientific literature and share their opinions on research they consider significant in a particular field. And in doing that, they filter the literature and point readers to crucial research that they shouldn't miss. As one user described it, faculty opinions is like having an expert in the field sitting on your journal club meeting and gently guide the conversation with pertinent observations about the research you're discussing. Today's guests made notable contributions to faculty opinions in covering the colossal COVID-19 research output that resulted from the quest to tackle the global pandemic. Anthony Harris is an honorary professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and senior advisor at the International Union Against Tuberculosis and Lung Diseases. He's a physician and a registered, registered specialist in the United Kingdom in infectious diseases and spent over 20 years living and working in sub-Saharan Africa. In Malawi, he served the Ministry of Health as national advisor on both TB and HIV with responsibility for scaling up antiretroviral therapy there. In 2008, he joined the union where he has launched a successful training program in operational research. He is also author of hundreds of published papers on TB, HIV, AIDS, tropical medicine, and the impact of operational research. Welcome, Tony. And Gavin Coe joins us from within the pharmaceutical sector and is at the coalface of COVID drug development as product lead for Evusheld, AstraZeneca's monoclonal antibody combination for treatment and prevention of COVID-19. Gavin is fellow of the Royal College of Physicians, Honorary Infectious Diseases Consultant at Northwick Park Hospital London with special interest in acute medicine and travel-related infections. Gavin speaks today in a personal capacity and his comments and views do not in any way represent AstraZeneca. So welcome to you both um, and thank you for joining us. Um, I'd just like to say to our listeners, um, we hope that you'll come away from this podcast with a sense of how the research communities in academia and industry work together to tackle the virus and the role that peer review and expert commentary had in driving vaccine development and research or research and development. Um, So first off, um, I'm going to ask Gavin if you would please tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you have done and that you do. Thank you very much, Ms. Green, for the invitation to speak. So I'm uh, an infectious diseases physician, as you said, uh, but for the past 10 years, I've worked full time in medical research, specifically in drug development. I worked first in malaria, Vivax malaria, and then moved on to tuberculosis. When the pandemic struck, all of my clinical trials suddenly stopped. And I suddenly discovered um, that the entire world's focus was on a new virus called SARS-CoV-2. And that's when my work turned towards 
uh, COVID-19 for the simple reason that it wasn't possible to do anything else. Right. Well, thank you for that very profound start. And Tony, if you'd like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Yes. No, thank you. Uh, thank you, Nazarene. So, I mean, I, I, I trained in the UK National Health Service um, and then went to Africa in 1983, stayed there till 2008, so in fact, 25 years in Africa. And, and interestingly, there coped with the previous pandemic of HIV AIDS, because when I arrived in Africa yeah. in 83, it uh, had not appeared on that continent. And it's appeared in 1986, in fact, clinically when I first moved to Malawi. So we had to cope with a, a sort of similar, a similar virus, although different in the way it infected humans and the way it presented. Um, I've, I've been back in the UK for the last 14 years and have been, as you said, um, helping to run operational research programs around the world, actually. So one of the things that COVID did right. to, to, to me and, and, and my colleagues was halt our international travel. I think I must have spent 40%, 50% of my time overseas, and suddenly that came to a, a stop in April 2020. And we had to redesign ourselves to training and teaching online, which in fact we did reasonably successfully, I think. Do you think that's a permanent pivot, just as an aside? It's, it's a very good question. I think we're going to change the way we do things. It made us realize we can do a lot of our work remotely. And, you know, we're also uh, we're, we're, we're keen on preserving the planet, not using too much uh, emissions by air, air, aircraft travel. So, indeed, I think we're mm -hmm. going to work differently and probably use what we call hybrid models, where we do some of our training remotely and some of our training face to face. Excellent. Right. Well, thank you both for giving our audience an idea of who you are and, and the work that you do. So um, I'd like to start off with uh, a little bit of context to this discussion. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about how and when you realised that SARS-CoV-2 virus was going to be the cause of a global pandemic and how this impacted your own work. Gavin, would you like to start with that? Oh, um, I, I distinctly remember that moment, actually. It was roughly March. There were two things that... March 2020. Yes, two, March 2020, there were two things that immediately struck me yeah. at roughly the same time when I suddenly realised, oh dear, we're not going to contain this. This is not like SARS in 2003-2004. And the two differences were these. Right. First... The, the first reports, the suggestions that there was asymptomatic carriage. The big difference with SARS is that SARS, if you got it, if you were infected, you had a fever, you were unwell. So it was very easy without a diagnostic test to know who was infected and to isolate them. What became right. evident very early on in the pandemic is that there had to be asymptomatic transmission. And if there's asymptomatic transmission, you have no idea who is infected. Mm. You cannot isolate them. This thing, I therefore knew, would spread in an uncontrolled way because there was no way of rolling out a diagnostic test fast enough to actually contain the spread. The right. second thing that then worried me is because 
the disease produces a pneumonia that unless you test for it isn't necessarily very atypical it's a pneumonia there were countries which i know had received visitors from china from singapore from other countries that had reported covid-19 cases who were claiming to have not a single case and that of course right. highly implausible which meant that they were not screening for it they were not testing for it and they were not isolating which meant that there whatever efforts other countries might be making to control the spread of the disease mm. were essentially for naught right and you said that was a, a very was that quite a profound moment for you yes because i had initially thought well this is going to be a replay of sars 2003 2004 right. we've been through this before it's really tough but we know what to do and we get mm-hmm. back to the other end but at that point i realized it was going to spread and it was not going to be under control it would eventually mm-hmm. burn through the world and then eventually become endemic but it wasn't going to disappear right yeah tony and for you yes 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 i think slightly different to to gavin i i i was in africa during sars in 2003 2004 and basically we weren't affected by by sars it was if you like a northern mm. hemisphere infectious disease so i i think i became concerned you know from watching the television listening to the radio and seeing what was going yeah. on in china and realizing that no international traffic was being stopped or or sort of looked at properly and i thought this is going to spread and indeed you know cases started to come up in europe and then america um yeah. so i think i think in january i was concerned that this would blow up to something i i kept thinking i wonder when who i i've had long links with who when is who going yeah. to uh, announce this as a public health uh, you know Uh, emergency of international concern it was a bit it was a little bit late in my opinion and then of course the global pandemic yeah. was announced in march so i think it was january where i became concerned lazarine about this actually and having mm. lived in africa worked in africa 25 years i was really worried that this was going to hit africa hard because there's a lot of africa china travel particularly air travel yes. trade and everything mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and was africa impacted to the extent that you thought it would be well it's very interesting if you read the literature it seems as though africa got away with it but i don't believe that i i have colleagues working in east africa central africa i think they got hit quite hard there was very little testing capacity so you didn't know mm-hmm. as gavin said you didn't know what was happening there were there were a lot of deaths um occurring particularly in urban areas again of people they, there was some very good research which i've had reviewed for faculty of a thousand uh from zambia yeah. i remember looking at postmortems finding a lot of deaths due to covid 19 which had never been reported no one had ever been tested so i think i think mm. it, i i still it's not clear nasrin about what what's happened in africa i think it was hit i think there was a problem but i think it's come through it actually and if mm-hmm. again we we link with many african colleagues in our training courses now who say no big deal covid and 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 mm. most of the population's not been vaccinated either so yeah it's difficult to work yeah. it out really yeah 
and maybe in time we'll get a clearer picture. Maybe, maybe, yes. Yeah. Due to, due to um, uh, antibody testing, etc. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, I was going to ask, just sort of, this is like a personal interest question, but um, I got visions of scientists and their personal sort of WhatsApp groups with other scientists sort of going like the clappers in the early stages of, of um, the pandemic in terms of, you know, discussions sort of offline, but, you know, not officially saying things, but maybe talking to each other saying, actually, I think this is going to be really serious. And, you know, was, was that happening uh, for, for you amongst your, your colleagues and your network? Well, absolutely. Um, social media is present now in a way that it wasn't during SARS, for example. And so yeah. uh, my WhatsApp groups exploded. Um, the uh, infectious diseases group that I was on, that I am on uh, Facebook exploded. Um, and there was indeed a lot of discussion, speculation on these groups as to what was happening. A lot of information, some of it of dubious quality, some of it downright gossip and not actually factually based, all being exchanged. Wow. But because everybody no. could see that the impact was going to be huge, there was, of course, a, a corresponding amount of interest on social media or the social media platforms that I participated in on this. That's yeah. definitely true. Yeah. And Tony, what about you? Yeah, no, interesting. I, I'm of an older generation than both of you. So so I, I deal less frequently in social media. So different from me, um, it was mainly email correspondence. And we have a lot right. of conference calls with colleagues and with, with our union. So, so we had a lot of conference calls, mm. a lot of discussion about COVID. And we run a journal called the International Journal of Tuberculosis and Lung Disease. It comes out of our union mm. Paris office. And in fact, the editor said, I think March, April, I'm going to set up a new section, fast tracking anything you know about uh, COVID, any, any programs planning for COVID, any, any data that you can get, particularly from low and middle income countries, let's go with it. So, so that was a big source of sort of correspondence from, from my perspective, but slightly different to, 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 yeah, WhatsApp is fairly new to me. Next question. Um, with estimates saying that between 100,000 to 200,000 research articles published on COVID-19 by the end of 2020 alone, what was your process for staying on top of the literature um, or the research output? And did it sometimes feel like an overwhelming task? And how could you sort of sort the wheat from the chaff, as it were? Um, Gavin, perhaps you could talk uh, a little bit about that process for you. So because I'm a clinical trialist and all of my clinical trials had suddenly stopped, I suddenly found myself with a lot of time on my hands. And that's when I actually became very active for uh, faculty opinions because I had interest yeah. uh, in, in COVID-19. I saw that I could actually make a contribution. One of the things that changed very quickly in the literature when the pandemic started is suddenly there were plenty of preprints of everything. 
Now, my partner yeah. is a mathematician, a theoretical physicist, and then in that field, it is normal for publications mm -hmm. to come out as a preprint months before they appear in a journal. This is not mm -hmm. for the biological press, for the medical press, where I think a lot of people felt that if you put out a preprint, that may actually jeopardize you, the possibility of you getting your manuscript being accepted by a journal in the future. But the right. pandemic changed that. I think that that was a mixed blessing. Um, and I, 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 I don't know okay. whether Tony agrees, being as closely involved with the journal as, as he is. What it meant is that data came out very quickly. You are right. However, the quality of the data was exceedingly mixed with some absolute right. rubbish actually coming out as well. And of course, because there was such a huge amount of interest, people were consuming information and data and papers and reports at an enormous rate. But many of these people couldn't necessarily sort the wheat from the chaff. And I therefore saw an opportunity mm -hmm. to do that through faculty opinions and provide peer review for preprints that were that wasn't necessarily available to anybody else. If if you didn't necessarily yeah. if if you weren't an infectious diseases specialist, if you didn't really understand virology or epidemiology that well, how do you make the judgments about the papers when there is so much coming at you? And so I tended to focus on things that were trending on social media because, as I said, I was uh, active on social media and making not just recommendations, but also pointing out when something was really blowing up and I thought, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is not a good paper. You shouldn't be quoting it. And I don't agree yeah. with the conclusions. And I think that faculty opinions was exceedingly yeah. cool as a way of me providing that peer review opinion um not everybody would necessarily agree which of course is what it is. yes yeah but it allowed me to do that and then refer people to my review of the manuscript that preprint that had just come out so a tremendous service that you did to the scientific community gavin in that time thank you and uh, you facilitated that of course yes we facilitated that Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I really think faculty opinions um, showed its kind of true strength um, in, in that moment, actually, being able to, um, you know, have its faculty review large amounts of literature and then produce recommendations and insights on, on the, key, the key literature, the stuff that was really going to make the difference. Um, Tony, perhaps you could answer that question as well. Do you yes, need a reminder yes. of what it was? Yes, no, no. Again, very interesting and slightly different from Gavin. So I, I for yeah. years, have subscribed to three main medical journals, weekly journals, the BMJ, the right. British Medical Journal, the Lancet, and the New England Journal of Medicine. And also yes. monthly journals, two of them, one being our own TB journal and one being the mm -hmm. uh, Royal Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. So, and, mm -hmm. and the other thing was when COVID struck, JAMA, uh, as you said, JAMA used to issue, I, I, I joined up. So I got masses of online stuff from JAMA, internal JAMA, you know, pediatrics or whatever. So there was masses of stuff coming in. 
So a, a bit like you, Gavin, I, 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 was, I, I was worried about the preprints I thought were great because you got very quick uh, information, but a lot of that was, well, basically it wasn't peer reviewed. So a lot of it was not correct. So I saw my job as picking out good, well done studies from those main medical journals, from JAMA and whatever else sort of came my way and saying, listen, I'm going to sort of, I'm going to do a review on this, uh, discuss any limitations and say what I think about it. So there were five main areas I focused on, Nazreen. One was, this was a new disease. I was interested in, of course, the clinical presentation. I was interested in risk factors for mortality. That particularly as a, as a sort of program person uh, interested me. I was very interested in what I call public health surveillance using wastewater. That, that struck me as a very good way of seeing in a population what was happening, taking into account that some symptomatic people didn't want to get tested. And as Gavin mentioned earlier, a lot of asymptomatic people are not being tested. So it was a way, you know, the virus occurs and it's sort of excreted in the stool. So if you examine wastewater, this can tell you what's happening at the population level. I, I was interested in public health measures, the whole business about face masks uh, and social distancing, of course, treatment. And what I particularly was interested in in treatment was to try and, 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 and sort of review articles that showed that things, drugs like hydroxychloroquine that um, the president of the United States was uh, promoting did not work. <laughs> and ivermectin, which a lot of my friends said, oh, we've read about this wonderful drug, an antiparasitic drug, you know, it's great. And it didn't work either. So I, I was pretty uh, keen on sort of showing, listen, here's a good randomized trial. It does not work. Please listen to this. Don't waste your money and, and perhaps expose yourself to side effects. And then, of course, the vaccination yeah. um, was, was amazing. So I, I, I mm. paid a lot of attention to what was happening uh, with vaccination, efficacy, safety, duration, et cetera, Nazreen. Yeah. And did you feel that um, faculty opinions offered you a, a mechanism to kind of contribute to the discourse around the COVID research? Yeah, no, that's very much actually. I, I mean, I, I've, I've been contributing for about 15, 16, 17 years to faculty um, uh, opinions. Um, so, yes, I, I, I felt my job a little bit like Gavin said, was what I call data curation, masses of data. So I try to pick up these areas I was interested in and do a proper review and say, this is a good article. Here's the essence of this article. Here's what I think about it. Here's the impact I think it will make. Please read it. Yeah. So I, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it, it was the volume. Yeah. There was a, a massive volume of stuff that you, you, you essentially couldn't keep keep control of. So I think if you know yeah. you had people like Gavin, myself, saying, "Listen, this is good. Read it." it it's what I what I call data curation. It's managing, organizing that that wealth, that massive wealth of research. Some of it good, some of it bad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You've sort of answered my next question in, in, in your responses um, to the previous question. So I'll skip over that one because um, I'm conscious. Would you believe it? I knew this would happen. We're having such a good discussion. We're, we're almost at time. And I feel like this is just starters. I, I think this could be a series, not just one podcast. Um, but just in sort of kind of wrapping up, um, 
what would you say has been the impact of the pandemic on the scholarly research landscape, particularly in relation to publications? And has this uh, been a positive impact? So I'm thinking here about preprints, open science and changes in collaboration uh, patterns. Um, Gavin, you've already spoken about the uptake and the uptick in um, preprints. Um, but overall, just, you know, summarize what you think the impact of uh, the pandemic has been on scholarly landscape. To me, and I, I recognize my, my perspective is, is probably different from Tony's, the impact of social media in general has been huge. And one of the things that happened during the pandemic was not just preprints, but science by Twitter. I don't know if you, if that's something that I apply Twitter, right? Where people, even faster than a preprint, people would feeling the sense of urgency would actually post figures, scientific figures that they of actual novel research that they had done and putting it out on Twitter because it knew they knew it would happen that day, even before they had even. Um, drafted a manuscript for a preprint. So it's been a huge acceleration mm -hmm. of the science, which, as I said, mm -hmm. I think is mixed. Some of it is absolutely fantastic. It is. It means that key information mm -hmm. gets out into the, the, the broader community and to people who need it much, much faster than it ever did. But mm -hmm. that simply increases the value of sites like faculty opinions to curate that information because if you don't have yeah. that review then it simply becomes noise mm -hmm. tony yeah I, I share gavin's opinion totally i mean i i think <clears throat> i think in the last two years uh the things that have hit me have been the rapidity with which papers have come out very so quickly preprints the obvious example the volume the huge volume of stuff that's coming out on this and within that this big chunk of misinformation disinformation yeah which one needs yeah. to counter with proper science i think i think again from my yeah. perspective having worked in africa um, I, I i sense that the voices uh, were essentially from the northern hemisphere less voice from the southern hemisphere so Again, in my faculty opinion, I tried to sort of reflect on what was happening in Africa, how COVID was affecting, for example, tuberculosis, HIV, AIDS, um, what mortality mm -hmm. was happening, what was going on with mortality in Africa, etc. So that provided me, that's my own perspective, with being able to give some voice, I thought, to um, to the south, yeah, to the southern hemisphere. So yeah, no, very grateful. I, the other thing I just like to say, Nazreen, was, uh, you know, going through papers, doing a review means you have to read the paper properly. It was very good. <laughs> so I mean, a lot of stuff comes out. You think I'm going to look at this paper, I'm going to review it. I've got to read it properly actually to do a proper review. Yes. So from a personal point yes. of view, I I enjoy that. Um, so yeah, it was it was beneficial for me too. So all that international travel that you missed out on was actually faculty opinions gain because you were able to <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I, <laughs> I used to sometimes uh, work through these things in, in airport, in airports, actually, uh, Nazarene. True. So, yeah. True. Yeah. Well, 
We are unfortunately at time, and I would love to carry on. Uh, you know, I think there's many areas that we could um, we could take this conversation, but. Um, you know, just to give listeners of the podcast a, a flavour of, of what faculty opinions does, and especially within the context of COVID-19. Um, I would just like to remind everyone that we have the Faculty Opinions COVID collection where you can see and read um, for free many of the recommendations that Gavin and Tony have made. So um, it's been a pleasure to meet you both virtually, to talk to you. Um, it's It's been fascinating. So I really appreciate your time and um, keep up the good work. 